show telling you all you need to know about Stanford and beyond. Hey, thanks for joining us. I'm Ken Durr. I'm Ashan Gandhi. Now, there was something in the air today. I don't know if you felt it, Ishan. I think it was love. I've, I've been hearing more about tree hacks, to be honest. <laughs> oh, that's Valentine's true. Day. Very, tree very Stanford. Of, that's right. That's yeah. this weekend, right? It is this weekend. Okay. Are yeah. you taking part? I am. I okay. am. It starts on Valentine's Day, which oh, I think okay. tells you. <laughs> is that tonight? Yes. Okay, what time tonight? Uh, what time does Tree Hack start? Mm-hmm. Uh, it started from four, actually. It's oh, sort of a okay. walk-in, walk-out thing. So after this, you have a team? Yeah, uh, I do. I'm, I'm sort right. of heading back to Juan. Okay, so yeah. that's your plans for the evening. Yes. All right, what Very a way exciting. to spend Valentine's Day. It is, it is. All righty, coming up this hour, the latest Daily Brew podcast from the Stanford Daily takes a deeper look at Carter's role in course enrollment. The annual competition for selecting the next Stanford tree, known as Tree Week, is coming soon. We'll have a reprise of my March 2019 conversation with the current Stanford tree, Caroline Kushel. And we go beyond the bubble uh, to talk with some youth activists that are coming in from the area. But first, the latest from the Stanford Daily with Ishan. Thank you, Ken. Uh, It's been an interesting week in local Stanford news uh, especially a lot of follow-up to um, last week's conversation with Zoe Brownwood of uh, Fossil Free Stanford as they had their week of divestment this week. So a lot of events on campus to talk about. Uh, my first story is uh, about Provost Persistrell responding to 92 questions submitted by students after an ASSU town hall on sexual violence on December 4th. Um, Persistrell, whose position includes overseeing the Title IX office, addressed concerns ranging from the increase in drugging reports in the fall to criticism of the university's handling of a $50,000 donation from Jeffrey Epstein in 2004. Their response has been criticized as an inadequate response to the issue of sexual violence on campus. This is a quote from a Stanford law professor, Michelle Dober, on Twitter. The answers provided by Stanford are a combination of untrue, misleading, and defensive responses that are not worth spending any time reading. Scathing, scathing assessment there. Next story, uh, Counseling and Psychological Services, or CAPS Operations Director Oliver Lin, has touted shorter wait times as a result of CAPS' new intake model and has asked for student feedback as a community dialogue hosted by the junior class cabinet on Monday. The discussion, which was advertised as CAPS Declassified, was promoted as an opportunity for students to to learn about campus mental health resources and ask questions about psychological services. Students who couldn't attend the discussion were encouraged to submit questions through an online form or to consult a full transcript of the event that organizers said would eventually be published online. CAPS's new intake model featured heavily in the discussion. Uh, This new model, which has been adopted in August, students have the option to walk into CAPS for an initial consultation as opposed to requiring that the consultation take place over the phone. Uh, It's aimed at reducing wait times for therapy. It's been characterized as a more brief focused intervention by uh, the aforementioned Oliver Lynn um, and more efficiently facilitates placements in individual and group therapy sessions. According to Lynn, previous wait times for individual therapy sessions could be four to six weeks, but under the new model, average wait times decreased to about 11 days at most in November and December, he said. Now linking back to uh, last week's discussion with um, with Zoe Brownwood of Fossil Free Stanford, they kicked off a week of action on university-wide divestment activism with a faculty-led teaching that cited insufficient transparency and accessibility of the Board of Trustees as the largest obstacle 
to a meaningful change on divestment. The teaching, which was held in Column Bay House on Monday, featured educa educational presentations by Environment and Resources PhD candidate um, David Gonzalez and Urban Studies lecturer Larry Litvak, followed by a panel of student activists. While Fossil Free has been actively pushing for divestment from fossil fuels at Stanford since 2012, the four undergraduate student panelists accused the Board of Trustees of opaque internal processes and delayed scheduling issues, and said that those stood in the way of divestment activism. The university hasn't responded to the Daily's request for comment. On this week, a talk in the law school on repealing da on the legality of repealing DACA had students walk out of it. Uh, Texas Sol Solicitor General Kyle Hawkins was only five minutes into his lecture on DACA litigation when more than three quarters of his audience got up and left the room. Hawkins uh, spoke at Stanford Law School on Monday at an event sponsored by Stanford Law's chapter of the Federalist Society. His talk was set to address the legality of repealing DACA, whose immigration protections President Trump has sought to shoot down since 2017 and whose continued existence is now the subject of a Supreme Court case. Last October, Stanford and 18 other universities filed a joint amicus brief in support of DACA. The Stanford Latinx Law Students Association, along with 11 other student groups, organized the demonstration, with member Raquel Zepeda condemning the intellectually cheap and morally affronting topic of the lecture in an email to law students. Initially speaking before a packed room of students holding posters reading, No human being is illegal, or Everyone is welcome here, Hawkins prefaced his talk by saying that since there was no planned rebuttal for the event, he would be arguing both sides. But of course, his track record aligns him more with Dacus' legal opponents, and he did spend the majority of his lecture explaining the substantive and procedural ways in which Trump could repeal Dacus, uh, emphasizing that he was making a, a, a sort of purely legal argument. Harry Elam, Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Vice, Provost, Vice President for the, Arst, for the Arts, and Senior Vice Provost for Education, will leave Stanford to become the 16th president of Occidental College on July 1st, uh, as was announced by Stanford President Mark Tessier-Levine on Tuesday. Uh, a quote here from Tessier-Levine in an email to the Stanford community, While this is bittersweet news for all of us who work closely with Harry, I am delighted for him and for the students, faculty and staff at Occidental, who will get the benefits of Harry's wise leadership and his unwavering focus on improving education and the student experience. The announcement comes after Provost Persis Drell announced in October that Elam would be stepping down as Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education at the end of the academic year. However, his wife, Michelle Elam, will remain on faculty as the William Robertson Co-Professor in the Humanities in the English Department and as Associate Director of the Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, or HI, as it is helpfully acronymed. Tessie Levine announced that the search has already begun for the next Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education. The Stanford Debate Society and the Stanford Ethics Ball team squared off over the question of whether journalists should censor their political speech at a Wednesday night debate sponsored by the Stanford Center for Ethics and Society. The event, which fused traditional debate and ethics bowl competition formats, centered on the motion, this house would allow journalistic organizations to prevent their employers from expressing partisan political speech. The Stanford Ethics, team ethics Bowl team supported the motion, arguing that self-censorship would lead to objective coverage and higher standards. SDS served as the opposition, arguing that the motion would restrict journalists' freedom of speech and exacerbate polarization. Uh, there was also free food served um, from local Indian restaurant Zareens uh, at the event, which I know was, amongst my friends, at least a uh, definitely spiked attendance. Another story about fossil-free Stanford in their week of divestment. Uh, in a call for Stanford to divest oil and natural gas, fossil-free Stanford highlighted how some people around the world are already facing the impacts of climate change. 
After starting in White Plaza, the Thursday rally ended in Main Quad with a moment of silence in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en of British Columbia, an indigenous group fighting against the construction of a pipeline on its traditional territory. Speakers from missing and murdered indigenous women, Students for Justice in Palestine, the Philippine Ex-American Student Union, and the Pacific Islander Club spoke about how continued investment in fossil fuels impacts their frontline communities. This is an interesting fact about fossil fuel Stanford, which actually I didn't I I, I didn't bring up in the um in the interview last week, but it is interesting. It, it, it is nice to see the the sort of um, consideration of how, um, at least in their arguments, about how divestment or the lack of divestment impacts different communities differently. Because, of course, we're not, not everyone on earth is sort of equally affected by uh, these things going on. I think that's an important thing to highlight. Um, Vanessa Farley, 22, who was an organizer for missing and murdered indigenous women, described how the fossil, fossil fuel industry contributes to violence against indigenous women through the practice of man camps. Temporary Housing for Industrial Workers. Farley cited a report published last year by the Canadian government which found that violence against indigenous women in the country amounts to genocide. Inciting research from a proposed natural gas pipeline, the report also states that currently indigenous communities, particularly women and children, are the most vulnerable and at risk of experiencing the negative effects of industrial camps, such as sexual assault. That's all for me this week from uh, On Campus News, and back to you, Ken. Thank you, Rishan. Have a good weekend. Well, last Sunday was the first day of enrollment for spring quarter classes, and most students likely use the Carta platform to help make their decision. In this latest Daily Brew podcast episode from the Stanford Daily, Wang Yi Jung takes a deeper look at the past, present, and future of Carta. Before the beginning of each quarter, every Stanford student has to answer one ultimate existential question that will determine their happiness, sense of fulfillment, and self-worth over the next 10 weeks. Which courses should I take? And that's when Carta comes into the scene. Welcome to The Daily Brew from the Stanford Daily. I'm Ellie Wong, and today we'll be talking about Carta, a platform that many Stanford students use to choose classes. Carta is a a platform that was designed specifically to help undergraduates at Stanford make more informed decisions about course choices. This is Professor Mitchell Stevens, the co-leader of Carta Lab at Stanford University. We hoped that Carta would make available information um, that the university holds in its systems, but uh, students don't have an easy way of accessing. And how it works is very simple. Let's say you want to look at the student reviews on CS106A, Introduction to Programming. You type in the name of the course, and the result pops up. Click on the title, and you see basically everything about the course. Course evaluation data uh, submitted by students in the same courses in prior years, and then information that would be available from academic transcripts, specifically grades that prior students had earned, Uh, and the sequence within which they took those courses. And this was the information that the university already had been storing for a long time. So Carta was built to take that institutional information that Stanford already had, aggregate it, and make it easily available to students so they would have uh, more information than they typically have when they're making academic decisions. The existence of Carta is based on a fundamental premise that more information helps people make better decisions. What CARTA does is to make that information accessible to every single student. I'm John Reinstra. 
I'm the student leader of the rewrite effort for Carta. Uh, we call it Carta Pioneer or Carta V2. According to John Reinstra, platforms like Carta can correct the asymmetry of information prevalent in elite universities. People from all different backgrounds come to the school. Some people have an older sibling who's already at Stanford. Some people have three generations of parents that went to Stanford. Some people's parents have never gone to college at all. And so you have a very wide variation of people's backgrounds coming into the school. For these people, Carta can be a powerful tool. There are some people who are really good at knowing which classes to choose. They ha- maybe they have friends, they have siblings, they have family members who can give them advice on this stuff. What Carta does is it takes that information that the people with the most privilege, the most access to information have, and make it available to everyone. So what I really see Carta as, in a way, is democratizing access to this information that helps everyone make the decisions that right now people are already making, but only the people who have privileged access to this information. And people at Stanford use Carta all the time for various reasons. Um, well, I mean, as like a freshman, I guess like before coming here and like planning out the fall quarter, it was pretty useful because like it let, it let you see like, oh, like you're expected like, you know, like how much hours per week that you were going to be putting on and like what other people have to say about the classes. And it helped me make an educated decision. Like I generally I've like tried to avoid the ones where people gave it 3.5 or something like that. Yeah, if it's like the overall ratings like pretty low, then I probably wouldn't take it unless I have to. I've read course reviews where it just says, like, I need a certain level of Spanish in order to be able to understand even the material that's talked about in the class, which I think can be really, really beneficial because then you just have an idea of, okay, well, I won't even be able to access the information that's in the class. However, despite all these benefits you can get, some students have mixed views about CARTA. I think... um Definitely having more information can interfere with you picking the right classes. This is Shreya. She's a freshman, which means she's new to Carta. First of all, your opinion can be swayed by the majority, but you might be very different from the majority. And so that might lead you to take a class that you might not enjoy. And this is where using Carta gets tricky. The website provides you with aggregate statistics about the class, but the numbers are faceless. You don't know who got a B in that class or who spent 15 hours per week working on the assignments. Or you could be intimidated by the reviews on that class and then you don't pick the right class for you. Here, Shreya raises an interesting point about the relationship between information and choice in online space. In 2013, researchers from Hebrew University, NYU, and MIT published an article about people's reliance on online rating system. They set up a news website where people were able to comment and debate on articles. Over the next five months, they collected over 100,000 comments, which were randomly distributed to the participants of the experiments. But before that, the researchers tweaked each comment a little bit. What they did was simple. For some comments, they gave an upvote. For some comments, they gave a downvote. The result reflected what the researchers called the social influence bias. Upvoted comments were 32% more likely to get another upvote than the control group. On the other hand, downvoted comments were 50% more likely to get another downvote than the control group. The research confirms our age-old wisdom. People love following the crowd. And rating system in online space reinforce this universal behavior. So what Shreya is getting at is, sometimes, looking at what other people say about the course makes her 
less adventurous. Then what's the advantage of not using Carta? Yeah, it helps me be more a little bit more exploratory. I also think I go into each class with kind of a blank, like no opinion on the class, just like wanting to take that class. From there, I can see how that class shapes up to be. And so I have no bias going into a class, which I guess can be good and can be bad. Having no information at all, of course, leads you into unexpected consequences. And that's the cost of freedom. But having too much information also has some consequences. And what we found is that first-year students new to Stanford who had easy access to the grade distribution information ended up having modestly but significantly lower overall grade point averages during the first two quarters of their time at Stanford. But why does this happen? Students um, work very hard academically to become eligible for admission to Stanford. They're highly accomplished students. Um, they expect and anticipate that college will be challenging. They get on CARTA, they see that the modal grade in many courses is an A minus, and they take that as a signal that the course will be easier than in fact it actually is. In other words, students don't try as hard when they think they have a high chance of getting an A. But the problem is, most of the students who sign up to that class think the same. It's like if you're using GPS on your phone and it gives you the fastest route, but it also gives the same route to hundreds of other drivers. Everyone ends up on the same road and you are 20 minutes late to your date. And many students understand this problem very well. Um, I usually try and get a couple different opinions, but I find that when I can ask them my specific questions about the class, that's more helpful than just a general, I liked it, I didn't like it. I feel like if you're like focusing on the grades when you're choosing your classes, then it's probably like you were already probably going to do worse in the class if like that was your reasoning for picking the class. Is that like you were trying to like do a class with a bunch of A's or whatever. I mean, I would first look at how similar I am to my friend, how um, similar our learning styles is, how similar our interests is. And based on how similar we think about or how similar we think and how our learning styles are, I would trust a friend if uh, more than Carta if we think very similarly, but that's probably not going to happen. So I would, in most cases, trust Carta more than the friend. In 2019, we are living in a world where the abundance of information makes it hard to decide on anything, especially when it comes to education. We are obsessed with making the right choices because the cost of a wrong choice is so high. If, if one thinks of 12 academic quarters at Stanford as high value real estate, that students and their families have invested a great deal in getting access to. Then the choices made in each of those academic quarters takes on a fatefulness at this moment in history than that it didn't have in a time when tuition was much lower, when um, admissions rates to Stanford were much higher, and when anxieties about earning potential were, um, were less intense. And so uh, in, that, in that way, I think students and their families do have a sense of um, 
high stakes and trade-offs when they're making academic decisions. Because of that, students feel higher pressure to optimize their four years at university, as if they are creating a portfolio that can guarantee the highest return from their investment, commoditizing their college experience. Yesterday, the presumption was、uh, everything at this institution is equally excellent. It doesn't matter which choice you make, and、uh, trust us, we're in charge. And、uh, today, there is a, a, a sense among consumers of a wide range of services that they should be able to have more information about the options that are available to them. Once we look at the university education from this perspective. We can see how CARTA might influence not only the students but also teachers, and according to John, this can actually happen. The thing is, CARTA has become the central platform that everyone looks to, almost as if like CARTA is the profile for your class, like the public presence of your class is your CARTA page. And I think the fact that teachers have no control over what their CARTA page says uh, causes um, angst and anxiety uh, among some teachers. That's something that maybe we can change,、uh, especially with the rewrite. But John is an optimist. He doesn't think Carta would cause more harm than good. Now that there's more transparency, professors realize that students want certain things, and and they're actually able to see that in your class, and they're responding to better address what students want. And I think that's good for students. Carta makes your exploration at university much safer. The exchange of information between students and professors also can improve overall quality of the service provided by universities. Carta is like a map for students' intellectual journey at Stanford. But this makes me wonder: Should liberal education have a map that tells you where you can find the Holy Grail? And how does Carta fit into our romantic vision of liberal education, like the one deeply rooted? In the motto of Stanford University.、I、hereby formally inaugurate you, Gerhard Casper, as president. Stanford's first president, David Starr Jordan, chose "Die Luft der Freiheit weht," the wind of freedom blows, as the informal motto. Liberal arts colleges and universities in the United States celebrate the idea that.、Um, We want students to come here and then expose themselves to a wide range of choices, find their passions and talents,、um, and then commit after a period of time to a particular field of study. We have a large faith in that process, but there are some large、uh, problems that that faith often fails to address. It is arguably the case that sort of too much choice or too anarchic a choice environment might lead to dead ends, cul-de-sacs,、um, uh, lost money, lost time. I, I think there are some sort of Stanford sort of versions of the problem of choice that that Carter research could、um, uh, help us understand better. Cartelab plans to build a national community around the study of academic decision making by making the platform available to other universities. Would Carta bring the wind of academic freedom to those places? We'll have to wait and see. We were wondering if we could get、uh, a couple of audio bites of you maybe reading out and reacting to a couple of questions、sure. on your classes. Sure. Okay, that's fine.、Um, 
excellent and very practical course. However, if you're looking to deep dive into rich analysis and understanding of the types of qualitative methods, this course might not satiate that desire. You might be left feeling like you need to take another qualitative methods course before you'd be ready to collect and analyze data yourself. I don't know, they all love me. Maybe this isn't going to work. <laughs> you can read the nice one. Oh, yeah, uh, you get out of it what you put into it. This episode was produced by Wonky Jung, Smitty Matal, Chloe Perot, and Rachel Koo. To hear from other Stanford Daily podcasts, go to stanforddaily.com slash podcasts. And you can go to stanforddaily.com for all the news you need to know here on the Stanford campus. Every year, Tree Week takes place in late February as a competition to choose the next Stanford tree. In celebration of her year as the mascot of the Leland Stanford Junior University Marching Band, here is a reprise of my conversation last March with Caroline Kushel. I'm Kender, and you're listening to KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Thank you for being with us, Caroline. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I am a sophomore. I'm from uh, Westchester, New York, which, which is a little bit outside the city. Um, I'm declared Earthsist right now, but, uh, you know, it's subject to change. Yeah. Um, what about me? Well, uh, as you know, I'm the tree, so I love all things kind of irreverent. Uh, big fan of dancing in front of large crowds now. I imagine, uh, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, why did you want to become the tree, and were there any considerations you had to make before you decided to compete for the spot? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Tree Week is, um, the process to become the tree is called Tree Week. It's a two-week-long audition, and it's it's a really intense process. You go through a lot of uh, personal growth. Uh, the way that a lot of people describe it is as like a pilgrimage of sorts, because it's really just your week to do whatever you want to do, you know, anything you've ever thought of of doing a stunt or a prank, something you've always wanted to pull off. Like, this is your time to just go for it. And so I definitely thought a lot about that. Um, I thought about, you know, if I went for this and I didn't become the tree, would I be able to handle that kind of loss? Um, And I have a really favorite quote by an author called Joyce Brother who says, if you can take the worst, take the risk. So I figured it was worth going for it. Um, But, yeah, I think I decided I really wanted to become the tree – because, you know, I kind of was shy my whole life, didn't really like talking to people, getting up in front of people, and certainly wouldn't dance in front of people. And I kind of fell into the Stanford routine that was, you know, you wake up, you eat, you go to school, you come home. Right, right. And uh, it's like, why not mix it up? Why not spend two weeks, you know, pulling pranks and enjoying myself <laughs> and making a fool of myself? And, and here I am now. Tell us about the process you went through to become the tree. What stunts did you uh, do as a sprout? Oh, there's uh, gosh, I had so many that I just loved so much. My my <laughs> debut stunt was a, a fake Vietnam War protest. My my whole tree theme was Psychotrelia. Okay. So it was all 60s, 70s themed, and so I uh, I had a fake Vietnam War protest and then I had the music changed to Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix. I ran in and I had the, uh, the band cover me from head to toe in paint in a white morph suit. <laughs> And I, uh, I used myself to spell the word, to try to spell the word tree on a tapestry. And that tapestry <laughs> I later uh, sewed into a gown for my final stunt. 
Uh, some of the other ones, I held a fake Woodstock in uh, White Plaza. I faked the moon landing by um, getting lowered out of a tree. I uh, I made myself into an ice cream sundae at one point. I, um, oh gosh, there was, there was a lot of them, yeah. How do you fake a Woodstock, or how do you recreate Woodstock? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I put on... Uh, some embarrassing clothing, and I stood in White Plaza with a guitar. Now, a caveat, I don't play the guitar. I really don't know how. And uh, I kind of just said, like, what songs do y'all want to hear? And I am not a singer. And I just stood there and just embarrassed myself for, like, three hours in front of, like, anyone who came to watch. And, you know, some people were like, oh, sing American Pie. And I was like, cool, I know the words. And then I had some other friends be like, sing Last Friday Night by Katy Perry, except it's in, sim, like, the video game sim language. <laughs> I did it. Yeah. It's just, it's just, you know, it's just an excuse to embarrass yourself and really put yourself out there. What was the biggest crowd that you amassed? Um, I think maybe when I, when I faked the moon landing, that was the most people, or, or debut stunts, like, kind of the whole band shows up to support you. Okay. Um, so that was probably the most people. At any point, were you ever like, what have I gotten myself into, or have I gone too far? Uh, yeah, there were definitely some some stunts that I pulled that I uh, I didn't regret, but I was like, wow, this this actually, <laughs> this was something. This might have gone too far. I, I might have bitten off more than I could chew. Um, but for the most part, everything was, it's, it, it's really up to the, up to the sprout what they want to do. No one... No one in Tree Week ever makes you or asks you to do something you're not comfortable with. So there were a couple times towards the end of the week that I was just so exhausted. And uh, I was like, gosh, you know, if I can't even handle this, how am I going to handle being the tree? But it's just so worth it. I mean, I wake up every day and I'm like, oh, hey, another day of being the tree. (laughs) How many stunts did you pull in total? Was it like one a day or did you schedule Um, them? It was about one every other day. So I think I pulled about eight. Ma- like major stunts and one or two like okay. mini stunts which are just usually really small things or you know like making someone a milkshake <laughs> alright so you're now kind of a figurehead or a symbol for Stanford, the entire Stanford University what kind of pressure or stress if any comes with this responsibility um I wouldn't say there's much pressure or stress just based on um, I'm the mascot, uh, the official mascot of the, the marching band. And we have such an amazing staff on the marching band. Um, my my manager and assistant manager, they're absolutely incredible and they, they take care of so much and just have such a great support team. There's some stuff like when I have to go to mascot events, which are um, pretty interesting because I'm the only mascot that can talk. I'm the only mascot that can take off their costume and be seen. I'm the only one who knows, who everyone knows who's in it. So when we're out there and we're doing these mascot events and we go back into the, the dressing room, you know, they're all taking off their hat, their helmets or whatever right. pieces of their costume and I'm taking off this giant metal frame yeah. and it's it's just an interesting dynamic and they're all kind of shocked at, you know, the freedom with which I can carry myself. Um, but for the most part, it's people are pretty understanding of, like, you know, it's a college kid in there. It's, yeah. it's just someone trying to have fun. How heavy is the costume? They vary. So we have some costumes. Um, two years ago, the cost two and three years ago was really heavy costumes. They can go up to like around fifty pounds. Oh wow! Um, the costume I usually wear was uh, built by someone named Nicoletta in two thousand twelve. It's a very light costume. I would say it weighs about thirty pounds. Okay. 
So yeah, they they vary. Um, I the light ones I I like wearing them yeah. more, but but they can get really heavy, especially when they're wet. They get really heavy. Is it hard to move around in one? Um, they're not too hard to move around. You can really get like jumping and going, and the more you tree, the more you build up the strength to like really get some airtime, um, which is fun to to see yourself develop that way. Um, but they're hard to maneuver in. So I've had like Pac-12 officials come to me and be like, hey, we want to do a seat upgrade. Can you come like give the seat away? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I'm trying to move through the aisles of these small arenas and I'm getting leaves in people's faces and I'm getting hooked on railings. And I'm like, guys, this is better suited for Oski. (laughs) And here you are dancing. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. So is the tree a part of you or are you a part of the tree? We always say um, amongst the forest that tree week, you don't become the tree. You always were the tree. Tree tree week is just how you find out. And so I would say that the tree is a part of me. You know, when you're born, you're the tree and you just have to find out one day. And um, so I'd say it's just, it's, it's something that's in every tree. There's just a little piece of of every one of us that's just was always meant to be. So your destiny was revealed that day. Exactly. That's how I found out. How much of your personality is represented when you're in costume? How much of your personality do you let show when you're in the costume? And is there a set of rules on how to behave as the tree? I think one of the best rules of how to behave as the tree is just to kind of like incite chaos. Um, obviously, there are some rules we follow, like especially when we're with like ESPN and they ask us to get out of the way. Okay. But it's always kind of a tradition of the tree to just be a little mischievous. And I think that is a lot of my personality. You know, nothing harmful, nothing that could actually cause problems, but just little tiny things that kind of are out of the norm where people would look at and be like, oh, you know, that's kind of silly or interesting. And I think personalities really come out when you build your tree. Um, I have not yet had the chance to build my. I actually went and bought fabric for it today. But um, every tree is so uniquely crafted to their, or every costume is so crafted to that tree's personality. I mean, my the tree above me, uh, Dakota, his costume incorporates um, independent prints from Native artists. And that's a huge piece of his identity that's just, like, so beautiful to incorporate. Um, you know, various other trees, uh, a couple years above me, one of the trees was a, a classically trained dancer, so his tree really shows off his... Uh, like his own form so it's, it's not a tree that really covers a lot of his lower body because he had such mm-hmm. great skills as a dancer so I think that like my real personality is going to come out when I have my own costume to match right. what are your responsibilities as the Stanford tree uh, what events do you go to and does the past month meet your initial expectations of what it would be like yeah it, it definitely does um I've gotten to, I got really lucky. I ended up getting to go to uh, the Women's NCAA March Band this tournament, which was incredible. Um, I got to have, well, first it was the Women's Pac-12 Championship, which we won for basketball, which was just incredible to be able to be there in the tree representing our school and, like, have, you know, white and red confetti rain down on our our girls. They're so talented. Um, And then we got to go to the Men's Pac-12 Tournament, which was in Vegas as well. Um, but we, we unfortunately didn't make it that far in that tournament. And then to go to the Elite Eight for women's in Chicago this past week was incredible. And I've done other events like um, 
we did a a walk in Redwood City for the Disability Day Thrive Parade, which was incredible. I got to play with a bunch of really cute kids um, and just dance at this parade. Uh, we did a Battle of the Bands with UC Davis, which was super fun. Um, a couple other random responsibilities or perks that have popped up are things like, uh, you know, helping the student store advertise uh, with the likeness of the tree or just, you know, enjoying the tree Twitter, which is really fun because it's actually surprising how many people hate the tree on Twitter. And I just have full artistic license to tweet back at them whenever I want, which is really fun. And now after this interview, they'll have an inside look on who you are. Oh, I, I hope so. <laughs> I, please tweet at me. I love replying to these people. What makes you unique from the trees before you? Um, hmm, that's a really good question. I think every tree's tree week is so unique, and, um... I definitely think mine, one of the things that I really highlighted in my tree week was um, an emphasis on really creative and stylized stunts rather than an emphasis on really, um, you know, crazy, huge, phenomenal stunts. But I think what really would make me different from other trees is just that, like, I'm a, I'm a different person. I'm going to, it's really going to be showcased in what my tree looks like compared to old ones. I think we're all just unique people regardless of you know the trees before you how does all these events fit into your schedule uh definitely taking a much lighter spring quarter (laughs) um it all works out pretty well um you know every once in a while there's a really long day the other week i had a a parade followed by a basketball game followed by a battle of the bands and by the end of the day i walked back into the band shack and just kind of fell asleep on the couch um but it's it's a really nice spring quarter is kind of the tree's calmest quarter uh fall obviously has football which is pretty hectic and winter has basketball and i believe volleyball which can get pretty crazy um but right now it's just kind of like i'm trying to find even more things to tree every once in a while something comes up and i'm like hey can i show up to that in costume and someone will be like yeah why not go have a field day with it in the coming year, what are you most looking forward to as tree? Do you have a list of things that you'd like to accomplish? Yes. I think my number one thing is have realized my tree in in physical form. I have this vision of what I want it to be, and I'm, I know that it's probably not going to turn out exactly like what I want, but I would love to just, like, have that physical costume as a legacy. Um, I'm really looking forward to football. I've heard that it is very long days Uh, I'm really looking forward to um, a lot of the rallies we have spring band run coming up on Wednesday uh, next Wednesday which I'm super excited about Uh, fall band run even more excited because that's the uh, new freshman admit weekend is coming up on the 25th which I'm very excited to tree Um, I really love rallies getting to tree uh, rallies is awesome sports games are great but there's a lot of logistics that go into it with like the other film crews, media teams, uh, ESPN or, or any network that's televising it is very strict on us. And um, whereas in rallies, it's just kind of put on the costume and, and go enjoy yourself. And finally, where can members of the Stanford community see you next? Is there a place to keep track of your activities and shenanigans? Ooh, uh, well, I can always be found at the band shack in the tree room. Most most time, if anyone ever feels like coming to learn about the tree or hang out with me, I'll probably be doing homework in there. <laughs> um, but 
in terms of where you can find me next in the tree, definitely come out to Spring Band Run this Wednesday uh, at around 10 or 11. You'll, you'll hear us coming. Um, Frosh Rally is a rally for all the first years in band. It's not too late to join. Um, and that'll be next month at some point. But, yeah, if, if anyone ever wants, ever wants to see me doing shenanigans, I will probably be in the band shack, scheming, plotting, executing, mathing. <laughs> and if they wanted to follow you on social media? Oh, definitely check out Da Stanford Tree, uh, which is D-A Stanford Tree on Twitter. And uh, the Stanford Tree on Facebook. And if you want to follow me, the actual person in the tree, that would be Caroline Koosh, with Koosh spelled K-O-O-S-H for every social media platform. <laughs> and that was my March 2019 conversation with the Stanford Tree, Caroline Kuschel.
This week we go beyond the bubble to Palo Alto High School. So not too far away from campus where students are leading an effort called Vote 16 Palo Alto to give 16 and 17 year olds voting power in local school board meetings. To tell us more about the effort, joining us now on the Relatively Roundtable are Antonia Moe, Miranda Lee, and Yale Serig. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so what is Vote 16 Palo Alto? Uh, so Vote 16 Palo Alto is a student-led campaign to lower the voting age to 16 for Palo Alto school board elections, as you mentioned before. So we are like a small chapter of a nationwide effort of students. Um, so this like amendment has been made in like nearby Berkeley. It's been passed for like city council members and uh, for like the election for mayor in cities in Maryland. So it's kind of like a nationwide effort connecting a lot of small campaigns. What is the significance in being able to vote in school board elections? I mean, I think in my view, there's definitely the idea of having power over issues that affect us directly. Like there is the idea of school board elections are going to affect the students first and foremost. So having sort of the the right to vote and the right to sort of have an influence on what's going to happen to us at school is important. But I think even beyond that, our, our main goal really is to just increase um, I guess civic engagement really at the end of the day. So I think one of our main goals with Vote 16 is encouraging people to see um, essentially the influence that their vote can have on a local scale. And the goal with that is encourage 16 and 17 year olds to get into the habit of voting in sort of a comfortable home environment before they go off to college. And the hope with that is increase the likelihood that those 18, 19 and so on year olds will will go on to vote when they're adults. Yeah, it's kind of like a civics lesson in the works and you can actually learn and participate in the system where you've just maybe talked about in your classes. Mm -hmm. um, have you, what about student participation in local or even national elections? Is that also part of the effort for lowering the, lowering the voting age, for example, for the this year's presidential election? Is that part of your Vote 16 effort? So with the Palo Alto effort, we're not focusing on the national effort, but I know that sort of on the national scale, the Vote 16 movement itself, they've definitely, um, it's been a subject that's come up. And I think a lot of times in the discussion, sort of within Congress, even the, the conversation has been not sort of just about school board and local elections, but it's been, you know, like, should we lower the voting age entirely to 16? And I think it's something that we've discussed at length, like in our personal discussions in Vote 16. Um, but we really think like, if we start sort of, you know, um, going directly to the national election, we lose some of the power that comes from, let's get people used to the local election first. Um, and it almost takes away that, you know, like we have this little transition period where, I mean, even you'll see with millennial voting turnout, like it's scarily low. So the idea with that is if we start with 16 and 17 year olds with local elections, we have sort of a transition period that's going to get people used to the voting system. And then when we get to the 18 year olds who can vote on a national scale, the hope is, OK, they'll be more used to the system. They'll be more likely to go out and, and vote on a national scale. Yeah. So I guess like we see it as sort of a stepping stone for like civic engagement and participation throughout the rest of the life and through like larger national elections. That's interesting. One of the common arguments against teenagers voting is that, hey, they're immature. They're not mentally prepared to vote in these national or, or larger elections. Is that part of the rationale for keeping it in local elections right now, kind of like a trial period? Um, absolutely not. We think that 
um, we're more than capable, and 16-year-olds really have the maturity to vote the same way as an 18-year-old, but um, really we want to keep it small for now, and because we live in such a privileged place, we all have the resources at the tips of our um, fingers where we could just look up um, any information that we want, and we would be able to educate ourselves, so it's really not um, a question of um, maturity or education, but really if people are willing to accept that. That sounds good. I was a student board member in my high school, from my high school uh, into the district. And if I recall correctly, there was some voting power that was allotted to your student board representative from your high school, just one vote uh, on the school board. I don't know if that, do you know if this system is applied in the Palo Alto Unified School District? Uh, yeah, so um, our two local like public high schools, Palo Alto High School and Gunn High School, both have a student board rep, um, and I think they like are able to have some influence on certain issues, but I think the idea behind Vote 16 is that allowing students themselves to vote in school board elections like encompasses like the diverse like student body's opinions because it's hard for like one or two people to represent the entire student body. Sure. And it also... I guess gives you like a fighting vote because even though the student representatives are able to give their opinion on issues, they don't get, I guess, a vote or like a final say. So allowing students themselves to vote for school board elections gives them like a voice and a vote in the conversation. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like a win-win conversation for both sides. You know, you have students on one end uh, being introduced to the voting system, being introduced to what democracy really entails. And on the other hand, you have these uh, adult school board members who now have a much wider base to base their decisions on. Is that kind of the way you see it? I think it is. And I think one of the interesting things, actually, is as we've had these conversations, we've met with like countless leadership members in the community. Um, and one thing we've heard is that uh, people are a little bit concerned that if this issue does come to the school board, it'll be sort of too polarizing of an issue. Because mm-hmm. if a school board member votes yes for this, it feels like maybe they want this younger age group to manipulate and add to their side. And if they say no, well, then it's like, well, maybe this is a school board member that isn't actually representative of the community's needs. And they're trying to keep it that way, you know, like gerrymandering with with age groups. Um, but I think really what we think is just as Miranda was saying, you know, like having two school board, school board representatives is a great start, but we have something like 2,000, maybe 16 and 17-year-olds in just the Palo Alto community. Um, there's no way that the voting system as it currently is, is representative of the desires of that community as a whole. So, yeah. How should that vote then be formatted? Is it you pass out paper at a school and then students vote on an issue that's coming up on the school board or do people go and show up to the school board and that's how they vote um so i think this would actually encompass like school board elections which are held okay. by the county got it got it got it yeah okay so students would be i guess the way we thought it would work is the league of women voters pre-registers or their goal is to pre-register all of the 16 year olds in the palo alto community so like with the list of pre-registered voters, we could like mail out ballots to the homes of 16-year-old voters. Okay, that makes sense. So it's the people, the adult members who are getting to elected to the school board. That's the main participation point right now. So trying to find people who are ideally more representative of your opinions, and that's the goal of this effort. I think that too, and also maybe just the power to participate in the conversation more, because I know one of like 
one of the key issues we've talked about is, for instance, the debate on whether weighted GPA should mm-hmm. be introduced to Palo Alto high schools. And I think um, when that was going on last year, to some extent, the most we could participate in that is coming to school board meetings and vo- voicing our opinions. But there was no real, okay, I vote yes that this should happen or no that this shouldn't happen. So yeah. a combination of those two. Just a public comment that was available to you and not necessarily the actual voting power. Mm-hmm. Got it. Was there a particular occurrence or instance that pushed you to start organizing organizing this effort? So what, what's the background of this effort in itself, and how did it come to the way it is today? Well, I think it was kind of, like you all mentioned, like the accumulation of small frustrations of like not being able to participate in a lot of conversations that the school board was having about students' educations. So, for example, like weighted GPAs, um, like bell schedules, like all sorts of things relating to the daily lives of students that we couldn't really have a voice in. So I think it was like really just like the small things that built up. And it was kind of like trying to find a way for students to be civically engaged and make a change in like their own education. So that's sort of how the movement came to be. And I think for me too, like um, I know Miranda basically started the Palo Alto movement from the ground up, but the reason Uh, Part of the reason why I joined was the 2016 election, because I know me and Miranda have talked about, like, at length, just the voter turnout statistics for that election are harrowing, and I think it was the lowest voter turnout in 20 years. Um, And so anything that I can do, it's hard as a 16- or 17-year-old to have a big influence on voting, on democracy, sometimes it feels like. Like, sometimes it feels like the most you can do is go to your Democrats club and just beg people to vote, send out postcards reminding people to vote. So having this organization where we can do more, we can really take concrete steps to increase um, voter engagement was something really appealing to me. Right. And if we look at the 2016 school board election, um, we can also see that a lot of the winners were set apart by just like a couple hundred votes. And there's probably about 2,000 students that would be eligible if it was lowered to 16. And it could definitely make a big difference in the school board members. What has been response from fellow students and community members in the city? I think fellow students have generally been supportive. Um, We've gotten a lot of sort of like grassroots support, people um, just voicing their support for the efforts. Um, In terms of community members, it's been, again, it's been a little bit frustrating because I think for the most part we've gotten a lot of vocal support, but there's been a lot of sort of um, concern over logistics and like I think something that I would really want from our community in terms of support is like, okay, instead of talking about the complexity of the logistics, which, you know, we've been exposed to that countless times, like, let's talk about the actual merit of our idea. Let's talk about, like, whether there really is support in this community and perhaps in broader communities for um, lowering the voting age to 16, at least in the local elections. Can we go to each one of you to talk about your backgrounds and perhaps how your background might be driving your influence and your impact in this organization? Um, yeah, I can start. Yeah. So, Introduce yourself. Um, hi, I'm Antonia Mu, and I'm a junior at Palo Alto High School. And the reason I was really um, interested in being a part of this movement is because we're all part of student journalism at Pali. And... Um, in every issue, we always write a lot of editorials trying to ask um, the Palo Alto community to change or our school administration to change something. And it's really frustrating to see all that work being put into something and um, the members of 
authority, not even paying attention or making an effort to change it. Um, so I'm Miranda Lee. I'm a senior at Palo Alto High School, and I'd say I have like a similar introduction to this. So as Antonia mentioned, we're part of um, the journalism program at Pali, and um, that was kind of how I attended my first school board meeting to write an editorial. And I think I was just like really shocked when I entered like at all the decisions that were being discussed that students didn't even know were being made, and it just kind of got me like questioning like why I guess a lot of like high schoolers weren't civically engaged like personally I had never been to a school board meeting before that and I feel like I wasn't like very engaged in our community so I started like looking into more student engagement and connecting with the movement at Berkeley and again like this is a really great way to empower the student voice and allow us to advocate for the changes that we do want to see and actually make a difference so that's why I started pursuing this. And hi, I'm Yael Sarig, and I'm also a senior at Pali. Um, I think for me, like, I've always had sort of a political background. My sister was very into politics, so I remember a lot of just dinner table conversations of her and my dad arguing about politics when I was growing up. Um, so I've always been sort of exposed to it that way. And, you know, the more you hear about it surrounding you, the more you're interested in it. Um, but I also came from a place that was really only interested in national politics. And so I started just speaking to some of the people around me, especially when Miranda contacted, contacted me about um, Vote 16. And I realized, like, this is really something I've never considered. I've spent countless hours, you know, worrying about national politics, but I've never really turned an eye to the local issues in Palo Alto. And so since getting involved in this, it's been a nice way to, to I guess, um, widen the breadth of my interest in, in politics. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in and talk to us today. I wish we had more time, but uh, we have to move on to the baseball game. So thank you so much. I'm wishing you all the best with everything. Thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. That's it for us this week. Thanks for joining us at the Relatively Round Table. I'm Kender, and on behalf of Ishan Gandhi, Darlene Franklin, and our friends at the Stanford Daily, have a great weekend.